This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Steve Jeltz. Steve Jeltz, number 126, shortstop for the Philadelphia Phillies. Fantastic. Steve Jeltz, I'm pulling him up on the Jumbotron right now. David, this is an amazing card. <laughs> is... I can see right away why we're doing this card. A few weeks back, a listener and Twitter friend Matt A., uh, MDAlbert88 on Twitter, suggested Steve Jeltz. Matt, you asked if there was a card that he would like to hear about. Matt is a Phillies fan. He said, whenever the late 80s Phillies come up in conversation, Steve Jeltz is always the first name to come up, and he has no idea why. You know, part of it, I I think, is the curls. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to find out why in this episode. I found that Phillies fans love Steve Jeltz. It seems like he was a sign of the quality of the mid-80s Phillies. He also has amazing hair. And in at least one sense, he is a rare player. Mm. We'll get into that in a bit. And uh, and yeah, he's had an interesting post-playing career as well. Put some suspense in there. I can't wait. Let's go to the front of the card and dig in here. It's not the best quality picture of of Steve Jeltz. We've got, because of the jerry curl that he is wearing... I would like to see more of it. Instead, he's got the very boring Phillies helmet on. And then it's it's a shot from taken from below, kind of looking up at him. And because of that, you can't – and it's too close in. So you're looking at him kind of from profile. And you can't see what is going on with this shirt. It looks like he has this big balloony – like he's wearing a parachute, a pink parachute. But it also looks like he has cut-off sleeves. Yeah, this isn't a t-shirt. This looks like a maybe a jacket that he chopped the sleeves off of. His, and like you said, that boring helmet, the helmet is the maroon Phillies helmet of the 80s, but it looks like the one that you would get a Dairy Queen Sunday out of. <laughs> yes. Or yeah, one that or you would at the ballpark, at the yes. ballpark getting a And it would say like do not helmet. wear this in an actual game. <laughs> yeah, or do not do not let food products touch it because it's probably toxic. <laughs> Nacho the, helmet. The batting you glove <laughs> you can also see. So he's got his bat resting on his shoulder. So the, the batting glove is, I don't know, it looks like a lady's driving glove. I mean, it's not, it, it doesn't look like a typical batting glove either. I also thought when I looked at this card that I, it almost looks like the quality of the card is low. Like, yeah, it's there... almost blurry. I mean, I'm looking at a couple different sites for the picture. So it, now you have the card in front of you, right? The actual card? Yes. Can you show, can you raise that up to the camera so I can put that on the Jumbotron? And let's see if I can see the quality. Yeah, it doesn't look any good. I mean, it looks like it's fuzzy. Steve Jeltz is that hot. They couldn't, it, it hurt, broke the camera. <laughs> well, yes, it's, it, it's not the greatest display of, of Steve Jeltz. I will say, however, the the Tops company did a better job than the 1988 Donruss company. The 1988 Donruss Steve Jeltz features a picture of Juan Samuel. <laughs> Juan Samuel 
also sports a jerry curl, also has a tiny mustache, also about the same size as Steve Jeltz and played on the other side of the infield at second base for this Phillies team. Juan was a much better player than Steve, as we will learn in a bit. But <laughs> at least they got the right player. So good job, Tops. On that oh, count. man. Oh, man. So for collectors at home, you can get the error Steve Jeltz Donruss card on Amazon right now for a dollar plus one ninety nine shipping. <laughs> if you want to actually get a Juan Samuel card. And that's interesting because I don't think that there was a, a correct, there was no corrected version of that card. So the only Steve Jeltz that exists is the one that has Juan Samuel on it for Donruss in 1988. That's that's very embarrassing. We've cataloged a few errors already this season in the printing, in the statistics, and now just with Donruss, like just getting the wrong player. This is an industry that was ripe for disruption. We will get to a Topps card that had that same problem when we get to Al Leiter at some point. Looking forward to that one. Well, let's go back. We need to talk more about the about the jerry curl, about the hair itself. This is an interesting topic to talk about in 2020. Welcome to what will sure to be a recurring segment of the show, Jerry Curl History. <laughs> 1988, a big year for the jerry curl. Coming to America came out in, in 1988 and famous for Soul Glow. Eric LaSalle playing Daryl. And as the cover guy for Soul Glow. You would expect nothing less that I would have some background for you on <laughs> all of these things. Other ways that this was a big time for for the Jerry Curl. The NWA, Straight Outta Compton, also came out in 1988. Easy e and Ice Cube both sporting some impressive curls on that album. So Coming to America 2, or Coming number two America is coming out in 2021. And I learned that Eric LaSalle will not be returning. Oh. As you'll recall, Daryl was the jilted lover. I figured they'd bring him back in the Cobra Kai style, you know, of bringing back Johnny Yes, as the jilted, as the loser who comes back and gets revenge. Coming to America, Daryl's revenge. Yes. <laughs> However, Prime Video, so this movie's going to come out on Prime Video, they... We're using Soul Glow in advertising tweets. Coming to America will let its Soul Glow exclusively oh on Prime Video March 5th. I don't know if that is timely. I don't know how timely Jerry Curl references are now. But the Soul Glow theme song from the original movie was written by Niall Rogers. Niall Rogers, there's a baseball connection here. He wrote the song, We Are Family. Oh my goodness. Among no many idea. other things, Niall Rogers still um, in the music industry. He, you know, produced albums for David Bowie for so many funk and. Yeah, I mean, yeah, musicians. yeah, yeah. But in the context of this show, the song we, him writing "We Are Family" is basically the best. You know, the theme song for the 1979 Pirates and their their World Series run, and really just for the city of Pittsburgh for I don't know, like ten years. Yes. Uh, However, wow. Niall Rogers said that the Soul Sexy Glow theme song was his greatest composition. We're definitely going to listen to some to all of that theme song right now. And interesting um, 
other connections between uh, between the Jerry Curl hairstyle and baseball uh, in the history of the Jerry Curl. It is named for Jerry Redding, who was the founder of Redkin and Nexus hairstyling products, and he wrote a a paper called The Anatomy of a Permanent Wave, and he did research, chemical research on the perm. So he invented this chemical relaxer, became very popular in the black community to relax the hair and give it this curl and, and shine. However, that was very expensive to go to a salon and get that done. So a black businessman named Comer Cottrell saw that in the early 70s that there were no products that were being marketed or made for black customers, decided to start his own company called ProLine. And he invented something called the Curly Kit Home Perm. Hmm. And it sold for $8 a box. So before that, you would spend $100, $200 at a salon to get this perm done. He then made this $8 solution. ProLine's profits went from $1 million a year to $10 million a year. And he eventually sold that company in the year 2000 for $80 million. So this wow. guy ended up making a ton of money off of it. Sadly, he passed away in 2014. But he also had a baseball connection. He was very big in the Dallas business community, and he was part of the group led by George W. Bush that bought the Texas Rangers in 1989. He spent $500,000 in perm money, and <laughs> <laughs> when the club was sold in 1998, he made $3 million back. And when that initial sale went through, he was the first black person to own a stake in any major league baseball team. Wow. All from the Jerry Curl. And that was in 1989. 1989. It's not that long ago. <laughs> wow. Well, that is, it's fascinating. The nexus of, <laughs> of hair care products and baseball. And professional sports are always on the leading edge of fashion and hairstyles. And Steve Jeltz here was very contemporary in his hairstyle. When you're sporting the same hair as Easy e and Ice Cube and Lionel Richie. It's a good look. Absolutely. And it might, might have something to do with why Phillies fans remember Steve as well. Was there a missed opportunity here? Should Steve Jeltz have had his own hair gel? Mm. Steve Jeltz hair gel. Jeltz. I, I don't know. I just like saying Steve Jeltz. It's fun. It's like saying Steve Holt. <laughs> yes. That, I think, takes care of the front of the card. Now looking at the back of the card. So Steve Jeltz, again, uh, shortstop, 5'11", 180, a switch hitter, and born May 28th, 1959 in Paris, France. He's the first Frenchman that we have covered in the 1988 Tops podcast. And good reason for that. There have only been seven players born in France to play in Major League Baseball. Interestingly, three of them played in the 80s. So Jeltz, Bruce Bochy, who went on to win three World Series as the manager of the Giants, and Charlie Lee, who is the only one of those three to play in an all-star game. Steve was born into a military family, and the family moved to Lawrence, Kansas when Steve was a child. Growing up in Lawrence, did he, did he go to KU? He did, and he played three seasons for the Jayhawks baseball team and then was drafted in the ninth round by the Phillies in 1980. What was he like in the minors? It was clear in the minors and clear throughout his career that Steve was a good defensive shortstop, but was never going to hit for much. 
Yes, it says that he led Carolina League second baseman with 662 chances accepted and 84 double plays at Peninsula in 1981. Yes, a good defensive player. He would hit in the 230 to 240 range. At double A in, in 1982, he hit seven home runs, which is kind of impressive considering his pro output did not meet <laughs> seven home runs. Uh, in one season, he had 38 steals, but largely he was a defensive player. He played all over second base, shortstop, outfield. A couple years in the minors, got a call up finally to the majors in 1983 for 13 games. He got it one hit, a triple, in an 8-3 to loss to the Dodgers in 1983. Yeah, and I don't want to go too far out of order, David, but you look at the... We just look at the five seasons that are listed on the back of this card. These are not good offensive numbers. There, there's no batting average that goes higher than 232. There's only one home run listed in all five seasons put together. Only 10 stolen bases in all five seasons put together. Uh, so it seems to bear it out that offensive work is not his strength. We may come back around to this idea that people remember Steve Jelts that he's just around and no one could figure out why he was around. Well, well, let's dig into it. Maybe, let's see if we can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so the, those first couple seasons, 83-84, he gets uh, late-season call-ups or spends a portion of the season in AAA and a portion of the season in Philadelphia. He did that in 83 and 84. In 1984, his second season, he played in 28 games, and he hit a, he hit a home run. Then he went three seasons with the Phillies without hitting another. <laughs> so he's kind of slowly establishing himself with the team. Inauspiciously, in 1985, he started the season with three errors on opening day. Yikes. He remained the starting shortstop, though, until August, even though he was hitting well under 200. That season was the first year that the Phillies were under 500 since 1974, so it was a rough year for the Phillies, rough year for Steve. It just seemed like they kept giving him chances, even though he couldn't hit, was barely <laughs> hitting his weight. Yeah, I wonder about it. I mean, it's you've got to imagine that a shortstop hitting that low of a batting average is probably batting eighth. Mm -hmm. And so his average is terrible compared to what? you know. So I don't know what the average shortstop batting average was at that time but generally i mean so far during the show you know we haven't had too many that were batting more than 230 or 240 so you know maybe the manager thought well he's not the reason we're losing yes you know we're not counting on him to hit that's an interesting point because steve and steve made that same point in an interview i read later in his career he said you know my whole career i was hitting eighth right in front of a pitcher and so it's a different task than when you're batting second Sometimes on this podcast, we talk about wins above replacement. Well, they, they found a replacement for Steve. A guy named Tom Foley in 1986 was supposed to start at shortstop, and he got hurt in spring training. So Jelt started the whole season. And in 1986, again, hitting 219, playing 145 games, not really lighting it up, but playing solid defense. That 86 Phillies team was decent. They were over 500. But the Mets team that year was so dominant that they won the NL East by 21 and a half games. Okay, but still still over 500, so getting a little bit better. Looking at 1987 and the last year that's listed on this card, 
Steve plays in 114 games, and he was the opening day starter, but it looks like he got sent down. Up until June, he was hitting 179 and was sent down to AAA, called back up in July, and he ended up finishing out the season pretty well from August 1st until the end of the season, he hit 272, which by Steve Jelt's standards is a pretty good season. He brought his batting average up to 232 by the end of that year. Again, a good fielding season, um, 971 fielding percentage, which was good for fourth in the National League. That 87 team, even though they had the Cy Young winner in Steve Bedrosian, was pretty average. They were 80 and 82. So still middling, around 500. Into 1988, which is after this card, he played in 148 games, and it was looks like the last time that he was really a starter. But there's one, one thing in here we definitely need to talk about that happened in that 1988 season, David, and that is that Steve Jeltz unleashed the hidden ball trick. Yes, on, no, uh, on none other than Gary Carter. Gary Carter yes. should have known. Uh, you know, we talk about pranks on here. I don't know. This doesn't qualify as a prank. This this qualifies this, as smart ball ball playing. This is, I, I think the hidden ball trick is like the hot foot of legitimate baseball strategy. Yes. It's, it is, it's so, it's obvious and yet sneaky at the same time. I mean, come on. Like, are you going to fake like you don't have the ball in your glove? And yet sneaky because just like the hot foot, you feel as embarrassed by being tagged out as if your entire shoe were on fire from a book of matches that was stuck there with some chewing gum. So April 8th, this was, I think, the third game of the season. The Phillies were playing the Mets at home in Veterans Stadium. It's the top of the ninth inning. Gary Carter's on second base. Steve Jeltz playing shortstop. Howard Johnson is at the plate, hits a long fly ball to center field. The ball is caught for the second out of the ninth inning. The throw goes back into Jeltz to hold Carter on second base, and Jeltz puts the ball kind of behind his back, slowly walking around. I think as Carter turns, Jeltz pretends to throw the ball, and then very quickly tags Carter as he's walking back to second base for the final out of this game and to end the game on a hidden ball trick. So heads up play by Steve Jeltz. Sadly, this was one of the high points of the season for that 1988 Phillies team. They won that game to bring their record to 2-1. and one. They won the next game, and that two games over 500 was the high watermark for the season. So they ended that season 65-96. Oh, no. Oof. Again, Steve got some playing time, but ended the season with a 187 batting average. Below the Mendoza line for 1988. No good. And going into 1989, it looks like, you know, the Phillies were starting to give up on him. As, it's a, it's as amazing the that they stuck with him for three seasons where <laughs> at what point do you say this guy's 28 years old and hitting 220? Well, 1989, looks like the Phillies have given up on him as being a starter and signed Dickie Thon, who ends up replacing him. But in 1989, we have another epic highlight, which is the Steve Jeltz power surge. Single-handedly forced a man 
to walk across the state of Pennsylvania. Matt, coming into the 1989 season, Steve Jeltz had one career home run. That was the home run in 1984 in 1,612 plate appearances. In 1989, he had four home runs. He hit one May 21st. That was his first since 1984. At that point in... On May 21st, he was hitting 306 with an 863 OPS, so really good for Steve Jeltz. But the next month in June was when he he had an unprecedented Steve Jeltz power surge, including one of the games of the year for 1989. Yeah, we're going to play some audio here of this game to to set the stage. This is June 8th, 1989. So it's my birthday. I would have been turning 12 years old and probably would have been watching, could have been watching at home for this game if it had been on TV. Although with the Phillies <laughs> versus the Pirates, both of them sub 500 teams in the late 80s. Well, uh, if you look at the, not, the Pirates actually. on paper here, they had their good team, the team that went into the playoffs in the early 90s with Bonds, Bonilla, Van Slyke. It looks like a good team on paper, but they weren't there yet, and this was a down year for the Pirates. The Phillies were still as bad as they were in 1988, so bad that they went down 10 to nothing in the first inning. But Pirates broadcaster Jim Rooker felt otherwise and let off the bottom of the first with a bold proclamation. Well, a leadoff double for Randy Reddy. Well, I'll tell you something right now. If we lose this game... I'll walk back to Pittsburgh. You'll have to. I won't have to, but I will. (laughs) And from beneath the broadcast mic, the Phillies made plans for Rooker's hike. The Phillies scored two runs in the bottom of the first on a Von Hayes home run. And Jeltz actually didn't even start this game, but the manager pulled Tommy Herr at second base in the second inning. He said, you know... I don't need to play everybody. We're losing 10 to nothing. Let's give Tommy Herr a rest. So Jelt's playing out of position and also batting much higher in the lineup. Now he gets his chance and at the top of the order, and he walks on his first at bat and then scores on Von Hayes' second home run. So that's 10 to 4. In the fourth inning, Jelt's comes up again against Bob Walk. Good 1988 tops name, Bob Walk. And uh, he hit a curveball, line drive, just over the wall in right field. So 10 to 6. At this point, there's a video that we'll post, and Jimmy Leland is interviewed, and he just said, you know, that at some point in this game, he just had a feeling in his gut that they were going to lose. I I imagine giving up one home run to Steve Jeltz will do that. Later, (laughs) with the Pirates up 11 to 6, Jeltz comes up (laughs) against Bob Kipper, was batting lefty against Bob Walk. Now he's batting righty, and he hit a fastball deep to left over Barry Bonds for a three-run homer to make it 11-9. So this doubled his career home run total in one game. He's the first Philly to homer from both (laughs) sides of the plate in the same game. And at that time, he was only the 27th person in the National League to accomplish that, and only the 81st overall. Maybe the most unlikely person to do that. You know, Mickey Mantle, famous switch hitter, did this 10 times. Mark Teixeira has did this 14 times. Steve Jeltz had two home runs in his career going into this game. Incredibly unlikely. The Phillies fans gave him a, a curtain call. So after his second home run, they called him out. He waves his cap. 
The Phillies ended up tying the game. John Crook scored on a wild pitch. There's just what? weird things happening in this game. <laughs> a bouncing ball off of Chico Lean's glove led to another run. The Phillies won 15-11. to 11. So Jim Rooker's got to eat his words. I'm guessing he did not walk home from Philadelphia that day uh, or the next, but it looks like you know, at the end of the season. So in October, he, he walked from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh from stadium to stadium. How long did it take him? Like a week and a half? 12 days. <laughs> oh yes. man. It's 320 miles. I think that's yeah, a long that's walk. A long way. P- Pennsylvania is a big state. This walk raised thousands of dollars for charity for the children's hospital. So good job, Jim Rooker. Good job, Steve Jeltz. So how about for the rest of 1989? This was Steve Jelt's best season of his career. Unfortunately, he was not a starter at this point regularly, but he hit 243. Of course, those four home runs were the best home run total of his career. That four of his five career home runs came in 1989. Uh, He had a 694 OPS, which was a career best in 116 games. Uh, 1.5 wins above replacement also the best of his career. Okay season for Steve. However, going into 1990, he wasn't really needed anymore and was traded to Kansas City for Jose De Leon. And Jose De Leon at one point was a promising pitcher who unfortunately had some injury issues when he got to the Phillies. Kansas City was a little bit closer to home for Steve. And he said that unfortunately he was distracted by some personal issues. Uh, Steve tried to watch over his older brother who was going through some difficult circumstances and sadly in 1991 his brother died by suicide Mm. so some of these distractions led to steve having a disappointing time in kansas city he hit 155 in 74 games and then in 1991 trying to kind of recollect his career he ended up playing in the minor league systems of toronto and baltimore before calling it a career so his first year in the big in the bigs is 1983, and his last in 1990. Let's talk about his post career. There's been a, a few articles about where he's at, and I think that's partially due to Phillies fans being interested in what Steve Jeltz is up to. Shortly after his career ended, he ended up being a bounty hunter. I would watch the TV show Jeltz Bounty Hunter. Yes, I would. He got into this when his friend's father called him to help bail the friend out of jail. So he agreed, said, signed a $5,000 bond. And a few weeks later, the bondsman called and said the friend hadn't showed up for court. So Jeltz was on the hook for the money. And he found the friend within a couple hours and brought him in. (laughs) The bondsman was so impressed that he said, why don't you come work for me? And so Steve did that for a little while, and he said he was pretty successful at it. He later then learned a trade, doing some remodeling work. He can do electrical work, concrete, plumbing, roofs, and he did that in Kansas and Colorado and was also a coach and instructor for some youth teams. And he spent a lot of his post-playing career still living in Kansas. In 2003, he had a health scare. He was running, and his leg cramped. And he didn't really think much of it, so he went home and laid down for a nap. And while he was asleep, he had a dream that he couldn't move his mouth. And then when he woke up, he felt a sensation that went down his face, his arm, and his leg. And 
he was rushed to the hospital, and it turned out he had a seizure that was related to a brain tumor. Oh, man. Thankfully, that tumor was benign. He had it removed. But, you know, something that we didn't talk about when we were talking about Steve's early career, when he was first coming up through the Philly system, he and Darren Dalton both were from Kansas, and so they were friends and would drive from Kansas to spring training together. And Darren Dalton ended up battling brain cancer as well. So this was really close to Steve Mm. and a big scare for him. But he was lucky. Darren Dalton was less lucky and ended up uh, passing away in 2017 after a battle with brain cancer. But Steve has been healthy since 2003. And in 2019, he moved from Kansas back to Pennsylvania to be involved in a coaching program with the Keystone Nationals, which is closer to Harrisburg, this this team plays, and he's still coaching and still remodeling homes. And I found an article and a video with Steve talking about some of the players and some of the youngsters and teaching them fundamentals for this Keystone Nationals. This is, so far, Steve Jeltz sounds like the handiest player so far in the 1988 Tops podcast series. This is fantastic. Remodeling homes, teaching kids. I, this is awesome. So, well, fascinating post-career for Steve. So let's let's close the book on Steve. When Steve Jeltz was first suggested, it's easy to look at the picture and kind of laugh at the picture and think like, look at the silly 80s picture. Steve Jeltz is uh, the most accomplished French-born baseball player in MLB history. If there is a French Baseball Hall of Fame, Steve Jeltz would be in it. That said, he's a very distinct player for our podcast and a guy that we don't see a lot of anymore. I was thinking about what a light-hitting shortstop would be doing now in Major League Baseball, and I imagine they would not be playing. Steve had five home runs for his career. I was looking at 2020. There were 21 guys who played more than half their games at shortstop who had five or more home runs in the 2020 shortened baseball season. And that's what Steve had for his career. Of 434 players who had 1,000 or more at-bats in the 80s, only 14 had fewer home runs than Steve Jeltz's five. Of those players, none of them had a lower batting average than Steve. So not only was he not hitting for power, he hit 213 in the 80s. This is a guy who, it, it is... It doesn't make sense why he was kept around, except that he was good for solid defense, would plug in wherever they needed him. It seems like everybody liked him. The fans liked him. He was on both a list of the worst players in Philly's history, but also a list of, I think it was like the least controversial players or something like that, where it was basically like everybody just kind of said, it's Steve Jeltz, and he's he's very 80s Philadelphia. The fact that we've had multiple people suggest Steve Jeltz as a topic for this shows that like people just remember him. Just being a, a staple and an ever-present guy on some bad teams. Steve was asked about the fans in Philadelphia. You know, there's actually a Snopes article about did Philadelphia fans actually boo Santa Claus? And it's true. Mm, true. <laughs> yeah, that is and true. S- true. Steve Jeltz, you know. Philly fans have a soft spot for him. They're known for being tough. Maybe it's his hair. Maybe it's that one game. And maybe it was that he was just a constant and you suffer together with a guy. Steve, for his part, said he always appreciated Philadelphia fans. And what he saw was that it's it's not hard to play there if you play hard. 
He said he got his booze like everybody else did. They booed Santa Claus. They booed Mike Schmidt. Who am I? If you go out there and play hard, it's a joy to play in Philadelphia. You know, he, he talked about getting standing ovations for making a good play in a game where they were getting blown out. People pay attention to the guy on the field and they pay attention to the work that he's putting in. And, you know, I, I initially balked at doing a show about Steve Jeltz because I thought it might just be laughing at his hair. And now I kind of want to find the Steve Jeltz on every team. And I get the impression from some searches that people in Philadelphia just like this guy. He wasn't good, but he was what they had. So, David, in episode 257, when we talked about Jerry Royster, the same kind of topic came up, which is how how do you have someone on the team that has the worst performance in baseball history offensively and keep them on the team? And one thing that we've seen time after time is that there are players that we look at and you know, years later and they were bad in the locker room and they caused drama or they had pros and cons of all kinds. And the pro was that they were a good hitter, but the bad was that they were bad in the field or that they were unpredictable or that they were injury prone. And to have someone who was consistent and good defensively and would go ahead and maybe hit in the eighth spot or the seventh spot and not complain about it. And even if they weren't hitting great, they weren't losing you games. That's still a very valuable thing. It's not all that valuable in 2020. You're expecting your shortstop to hit a little better than 200 and get more than zero home runs per year. You know, but the game has changed a lot. And back then, the one thing that they needed from a shortstop was someone who would be good in the field, make good plays, and not lose the game for them. They, they didn't need any help losing games. <laughs> and, and being a good teammate sometimes pays off even more than that. So I'm a big Steve Jeltz fan, and I agree with you. I like the thought of, let's find the Steve Jeltz on every team. And I feel like that's, that's something we're, we've been able to do with this show is look behind the scenes. So thank you for that. And thank you to Steve Jeltz out there. If I have any home remodeling needs, I will be calling you. Thank you to Matt A. for the suggestion of Steve Jeltz on Twitter. Yes, and and for those of you at home, we would love your suggestions on a favorite player. So if you had a favorite team growing up and you had a favorite player, let us know who you'd like to hear about, whether they have a great hairstyle uh, or no hair at all. You can reach us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.